We're going to return this morning to Matthew 25, starting right where we left off last time, in verse 31. For the last month and a half, we've been following Jesus up to the Mount of Olives, where he's been teaching, privately teaching his disciples about his return. Chapters 24 and 25 are often called the Olivet Discourse of the Gospel of Matthew because of that location of this teaching. But at that point, there was all kinds of olive trees there. And Jesus had met there privately with his disciples. And he was teaching them about what we call eschatology or the doctrine of last things. Or we often call them the end times. This, Matthew 24 and 25, is Jesus' most concentrated teaching on the end of the world. And today we've reached the end of that. The end of Jesus' teaching on the end. Starting next week, we will continue in chapter 26 through the remainder of the crucial events of this Passover week in the first century when Jesus was crucified. So so what have you learned these last several Sundays as we've listened to the Lord Jesus teach about his return? There's been a lot to it, hasn't there? It's complex. There's a lot of details, especially in the first 34 verses of chapter 24. A lot of facets to this teaching. Too many details to repeat this morning. But all along the way, we've noticed two main things, haven't we? One is the identity of Jesus. This is the Gospel of Matthew, after all, so we have to keep our eyes on the ball. Who is Jesus? He's the Son of Man. He's the Son of Man from the book of Daniel. And the Son of Man is going to come in glory and receive His kingdom at a time known only to the Father. That's been important, hasn't it? When is Jesus coming back? We don't know. Right? That's our little catechism, right? When is Jesus coming back? When is Jesus coming back? We don't know. Jesus said, Jesus said the angels in heaven didn't know. And at least at the time when he was teaching this, he said he didn't know. Not even the Son. Only the Father. Jesus said that we will not know until it happens. The Son of Man will come at a time when we do not expect it. He may come earlier than we expect. Don't take from this that you can get complacent. It could be today. It could be this year. 2020 is right ahead of us. This could be the year. Though he may come later than we expect. So don't say, oh, it is today. I know it. I'm going to just do this. No. He might come earlier. He might come later. We don't know. So we have to stay ready. And that's the second major thing that we've seen. That Jesus' focus on eschatology is not on all the details. It's not even on the when. His focus is always mainly on application. How we are to live in light of his sure and soon but unpredictable return. We don't know when, but we we sure know who. And because of that, we know how to live while we wait. Jesus has been hammering this point for more than half of the teaching. He's been telling us how to live while we wait. How to, as he puts it, keep watch. To keep watch. 
And he's told several parables, several stories to teach us how to keep watch. Several stories that feature a group of people who have to be ready for something to happen at an unspecified time. A thief surprising a homeowner in the night. A boss returning to check on some employees, unwitting employees. A delayed bridegroom picking up the wedding party to go to the wedding feast. A master returning from a long journey to reward his good and faithful servants and to punish the wicked and lazy ones. All at a time that they did not know. And so they had to be prepared. And they had to be patient. And they had to be busy doing what the master had left for them to do. Well, Jesus has one more story to tell before he's done. And this story is a little different from the other ones. There aren't that many storytelling features in this one. It's still a story, but it's a little bit more straightforward. Not as much of a parable. More like this is basically how it's going to be. And it's not a story so much about how we don't know when. He thinks by now we've got the point. We don't know when. We don't know when. We don't know when the sun is going to return. So it's not about that. But it is about how we are to live while we wait. We are to live lives of love in light of the Lord's return. You and I are to live lives of love in light of the Lord's return. Jesus tells one more story, and it's a story about what happens next. After the Son of Man comes, Jesus is coming. He is coming back. And when he does, this is going to happen. Now, like most of Jesus' stories, this story has a twist, right? You, know, you almost never hear Jesus tell a story, and if you are listening for the first time, you go, what? <laughs> what happened? It has a big surprise in it. In fact, it has two very similar big surprises that the initial readers never saw coming. But the surprise in this story is not about the timing of Jesus' return. It's that there have been a number of, I'm going to call them Jesus sightings, that the characters in the story didn't know were Jesus sightings? The whole story turns on this one question, when did we see you? The the, the people in the story keep asking the question, Lord, when did we see you? Because we didn't realize we did. Let's pray together and, and then I'll show you what I mean. Let's pray. All glory be to Christ our King. All glory be to Christ. Your rule and your reign we will forever sing. All glory be to Christ. All glory be to Christ in this sermon preached and this sermon received. I pray, Lord, that I would stick close to the text because it's your words that have power. As Frank shared, it's your words that do not return void. Not my words, your words. My words will pass away. Heaven and earth will pass away. But your words will never pass away. And these are your words. So Lord, help us to hear them, to heed them, to receive them as what they are. So that all glory would be to Christ, our King. All glory be to Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. Matthew 25, 31. When the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, 
He will sit on His throne in heavenly glory. All the nations will be gathered before Him and He will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He'll put the sheep on His right and the goats on His left. Now stop there for just a second. You see how this advances the teaching? How this, 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 this is what happens next. It's, not, it's about how to wait, but it's actually about what comes next. This is not about when it will happen. It's about what will happen when it happens. And it's quite a picture, isn't it? You hear that word glory when I read it to you? Don't miss that word glory. When the Son of Man comes in what? His glory. And with how many of the angels? What does it say? All the angels? Like he's not leaving any in heaven? Heaven's going to be emptied and the Son of Man is going to come and he's going to come with all of his angels. By the way, he doesn't have to leave any there to protect the back door. He's going to come with all of his angels and he will sit on his throne in heavenly what? Glory. There's that word again. Heavenly glory on earth. We cannot imagine what this is. This is the most public event of all time. This is where it all happens. The kingdom has come. This is what is sure to happen after the events of chapter 24, verses 29 through 31, the coming of the Son of Man. Do we know when that's going to happen? No. But that it's going to happen is unquestionable. The Son of Man will come in whose glory? His glory. And what is He going to sit on? Which throne is it? His throne. Do you see how this is all about Jesus? Keep your eye on the ball. This is the Gospel of Matthew. Don't just look for yourself in Jesus' stories. Look for Jesus. Look at Him. The Son of Man from the book of Daniel... Daniel chapter 7 has approached the Ancient of Days and he has received his kingdom. And now he's come to bring his kingdom. And one part of that involves judgment. Verse 32 says that some of the nations will be gathered before him. Is that what it says? What's it say? All the nations. So no one escapes. No one gets passed over. It's not just Israel that will face judgment. We know judgment is coming in Israel, chapter 23. But it's not just Israel that will face judgment. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He'll put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Jesus is going to sort out everybody. Now, he said this before. Earlier in the Gospel of Matthew, he's told us again and again in his parables that there will be a sorting. There'll be a complete and total sorting. And people will either go on his left or on his right. Like, he says, this is a simile, like a shepherd separating the sheep from the goats. They might look the same from a distance, but they're not the same. And they go to different places. Now, perhaps a shepherd separates them to keep them straight. 
or to care for them differently at nighttime. I read this week that goats apparently need more warmth because of their thinner coats. So at nighttime, they might have been grazing together, but at night, the goats go over here, the sheep go over here, and the goats go someplace warmer. I think it's likely that in this story, he's pulling off the sheep to go to pasture, and he's culling off the goats to go to slaughter. I don't think we need to read too much into the two different kinds of animals, except to note that there are only two. There's only two kinds of people in the end. Just like there were two kinds of virgins at the midnight cry, wise and foolish, And there were two kinds of servants when the master returned, faithful and wicked. In the end, there were only two kinds of people, the sheep and the goats. And Jesus knows, or the Son of Man, the King, knows which is which. They've been together all the time. They're together perhaps in this room. But now there is a reckoning and there is a separating before the shepherd king. So in the story, the king begins with the people on his right. And listen to this glorious thing he says to them. Listen to this, verse 34. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you Since the creation of the world. Oh, doesn't that sound wonderful? I mean, it doesn't get better than that. Come on in. Enjoy. It's just like the last two stories, right? Those wise bridesmaids entering into the wedding feast and enjoying all the great party that is heaven. Or those two faithful servants being given more responsibility and invited to share in what what Jesus calls their master's happiness. We cannot imagine how good this is. It should just thrill our hearts to read those words. We've been singing about them this morning. Come, you who are blessed by my Father. What a word that is. That word is so full of goodness. Blessed by my Father. Take your inheritance. The kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. This is Jesus' favorite thing to talk about, isn't it? The kingdom. Grab it. Get it. Enjoy it. Forever. This This is what's coming, friends. For the sheep. Now the sheep did not earn this. He says this was done for them long before they ever came into existence, since the creation of the world. He says it's an inheritance. That's something that's given to you based on what family you're in, not something you've done. This is a gift from the king's father, blessed by my father. The sheep did not earn this. But it's only for the sheep. The people who are like the sheep, placed on the shepherd king's favored right hand. And the king knows which ones are to go on the right. How does the king know? He knows from how they lived. He knows from what he observed in their lives. He knows from the evidence of his own eyes. 
Look at verse 35. For I, the king, was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you look after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. He knows who they are because of what he saw them do. They fed him when he was starving. They gave him water when he was dying of thirst. They gave him shelter when he was homeless. They gave him clothes when he was destitute. They gave him medical care when he was puking out his guts. They went to see him when he was in prison. He knows who they are because of what he saw them do for him. So here's where they ask the question. Because they're surprised at what they just heard. It's in verse 37. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you? Hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you, a stranger, and invite you in? Or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you, sick or in prison, and go to visit you? We don't remember that part. Notice they aren't surprised to be welcomed so much as that they're surprised at why. When did this happen, Lord? When did we see you? And he tells them, verse 40, the king will reply, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. So who are these brothers of the king? That's an important question, isn't it? Because when these people cared for these brothers of the king, they were caring for the king himself. Let me tell you who I think they are. I think they are simply other Christians who were in real need. Other Christians who were in real need. Now, good Bible scholars have had various takes on this in the history of the church. Some people think that these brothers of Jesus are Jews. Jesus' brothers according to the flesh. And that's possible. And some people think that these brothers of the king are just anybody who has a need. And that makes some sense too. I don't think we're supposed to narrow this down and say, we're only supposed to help Christians who are in need. Nobody else need apply. But in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus has said again and again that his true family are his disciples. Remember when they came to him and they said, your, your mom and your brothers are outside. And he's like, who are my mother and my brothers? These people here who do my will, they're my mother and my brothers. He said again and again that his true family are his disciples. And he said that his disciples, as they go out on the mission he's going to give them to make more disciples, are going to encounter trouble. Do you remember the birth pains in the previous chapter? What did Jesus predict then? He said, you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death. And you'll be hated by all nations because of me. All nations. That's who's gathered before him. 
At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But he who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And the end will come. Sounds like trouble to me. And if you help somebody like that in their trouble... Jesus is saying, you're helping him. Notice that it doesn't just say, these brothers of mine. The king says, the least of these brothers of mine. The people who are the least glorious, at least to look at. The least powerful. The least attractive. The least able to pay you back the least able to scratch your back. If you're helping them, then you're helping Jesus. Now, it doesn't mean that those people are literally Jesus in disguise. It means that they belong to Jesus in such a way that if you hurt them, you're basically hurting him. And if you help them, then you're basically helping him. We see that in the book of Acts, don't we? When when Saul gets converted... He sees that blinding light. And what does the Lord say to Saul? Saul, Saul, why do you persecute my people? And he says, why do you persecute me? Now, he wasn't actually persecuting the Lord, physically, literally. But just like he was when he was persecuting his people. We are his body, are we not? So when you love Jesus' body, you're loving Jesus. That's quite a thought, isn't it? When you love this bunch right here, you're loving Jesus. So if you hate this body right here, what are you showing to Jesus? There's a hidden message here about how much Jesus loves us, isn't there? Jesus loves you and me so much that he identifies with us. So that when you or I are hungry, or you and I are thirsty, or you and I are lost or destitute or locked up, Jesus is right there with us. So that if anyone helps you or me, they're helping him. We often think about this this story about, we we often think about, are we a sheep or are we goat in this story? And, And we should. But sometimes we also need to realize that we could be the least of the king's family. And the king loves us so much that when we hurt, it hurts him, so to speak. And when we are helped, he says, thanks for helping me. I tell you the truth, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. So that's how the king can tell who goes on the right. They acted like a person who goes on the right. They acted sheep-like, not sheepish, but sheep-like. These folks, these folks on the right, they're not play-acting. They're not doing this to gain brownie points, are they? These folks are not trying to impress the Lord with their good works. They're just doing good works because of the people they have become. They are given the kingdom because they are obviously kingdom citizens. 
They're not earning the kingdom. Some people read this and they're like, sounds like you can earn the kingdom by serving people. No. They're just living out the values of the kingdom and the king couldn't help but notice. These actions were the genuine evidence of a genuinely transformed life. And we know that because of how unselfconscious they were about it. They keep asking this question, when did we see you? We weren't trying to impress anybody. We weren't trying to earn anything. We're just doing the thing you told us to do. Well, you didn't see me, Jesus says. But I was there and I saw you. But the opposite is also true. And these are scary and sobering words. Look at verse 41. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. They also will answer the exact same question. Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? He will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment but the righteous to eternal life. Same story, isn't it? Just the other way around. These people saw the same followers of Christ in the same desperate situations, and they didn't lift a finger to help. They claimed to love Jesus, or at least to call him Lord. Lord, when did we see you? But they had nothing of the sheep about them. They were actually goats. They were fake sheep, weren't they? Now, if they had known that these actions were the ones that would open the door of the kingdom to them, they would have done those actions and those alone. That's why he came as like a secret shopper, right? Didn't know you were being tested. They failed the hypocrisy test. They were fakes. And we know how Jesus feels about fakes. Jesus already taught on this at the end of his Sermon on the Mount. At the, I love how you know, he's got five major blocks of teaching. The Sermon on the Mount is the first major block of teaching, and it ends talking about this kind of thing. His last major block of teaching is the Olivet Discourse, and it ends with this same message about not being a fake but being real. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, By their fruit you will recognize them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. You didn't help my family when you weren't getting any publicity for it. 
You might have racked up some public ministry and attached my name to whatever it was you were doing, but your sins of omission told the real story. Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire that this fire wasn't originally made for humans, but humans have insisted on getting into it. The eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels to eternal punishment. No second chances, the door is shut, the decision is final, and it is forever. So that's how Jesus teaches, that's how Jesus ends his teaching on his return. That's the last word. What should we make of it? How should we apply this to our lives in the last days of 2019? I thought of three applications to share with you this morning. Here's the first one. Rejoice. Because the Lord is coming. We cannot miss this glorious fact that the Son of Man is coming in His glory and is going to set everything right. Do you feel like the world is not right? Sometimes the sun is shining, you go for a walk in the woods, and you're like, yes! Everything is right in the world, but you know that the second you get back, or the second your phone pings, the second you get that phone call, the second you read the newspaper, you'll realize this world is not the way it should be. The second you go to the hospital, or the second you go to the funeral parlor, the second you go to the cemetery, Jesus is going to come back in his glory and he's going to set everything right. The things that go on the right will go on the right. The things that go on the left will go on the left. And he will make no mistakes. And he will reign. He will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. That should thrill our hearts. We've been singing it over these last several weeks for its 300th birthday. Joy to the world, right? Joy to the world, the Lord is come Let earth receive her king. That's not a song primarily about the first advent. It's a song about the second advent, about what Jesus has been teaching on. Let every heart prepare him room and heaven and nature sing. The whole world rejoicing that the Savior is here. No more let sins and sorrows grow. We talked about that Tuesday night. Sorrow and sighing will flee away. Nor thorns infest the ground. The world is all messed up. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. The curse gets down into our DNA right now. The curse is everywhere you turn. But someday he's going to bring his blessings and they're going to flow. Joy and gladness will overtake you and sorrow and sighing will fly away. Rejoice! The Lord is coming in his glory with all of his angels. And for his people, he says, come. Come, you who are blessed by my Father. Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. That's every reason to rejoice. I can't wait. I mean, I'm waiting, okay? But I can't wait. Jesus tells his disciples all of this to wet the longings of our hearts for his return and his kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. Rejoice, the Lord is coming. Number two, repent. For the very same reason. The Lord is coming. The second half of this prophetic story is very scary, is it not? 
and it invites all who hear it to repent of their lovelessness, to repent of their selfishness, to repent of their fakeness and their hypocrisy, to turn away from sin and to trust in the Savior. Because you know, you don't become a sheep by doing sheep things. You become a sheep by the Lord changing your heart. Now this passage doesn't say how to change. The rest of the Bible does. In fact, the very next chapter of Matthew is going to show us what it took for us to be changed, to be saved. The new covenant in His blood. But this story shows us our need for change. It shows us our need for repentance. Our need for a transformation from the inside out all the way to our actions. If your Christianity doesn't affect how you live, you don't have Christianity. And if you don't, then we see what happens next. He says to you, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Then they will go away to eternal punishment. Eternal, same word for the eternal kingdom is the same word for the punishment. Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is near. Repent, for the Lord is coming. And number three and last, respond for the very same reason. And by respond, I mean respond in love to the needs of struggling Christians around you. Show mercy, show compassion, care, help, serve, love. Feed them, give them something to drink, invite them in, clothe them, nurse them, visit them. The list in verses 35 and 36 is not exhaustive. Those are examples of the way that genuine loving Christians can help genuine hurting Christians. Maybe you give them a Bible like the Gideons. You meet the needs of the struggling Christians around you. You see a need and you respond not with a pharisaical walk on the other side of the street, not my problem, but you move in. Because the point of this story is not to see Jesus in needy people, but to serve Jesus as you serve needy people, especially Christians, because they are, we are Jesus' family. Galatians 6.10 says, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. Not to earn our salvation, but to live it out. To show that our salvation is real, that it's there. Because this is what faith looks like in action. When faith actualizes It looks like love. So the very last thing Jesus wants to share with his disciples in his teaching on eschatology is this. The Lord is coming. The Son of Man is coming at a time when we do not expect him. He's going to come in his glory. And we need to keep watch expectantly, patiently, busily doing the things that he left for us to do. And here he names them. Feed them. Give them water. Invite them in. Clothe them. Nurse them. Visit them, show mercy, show compassion, care, help, serve, love. 
Respond in love to the needs of struggling Christians. Serve in love while you wait for the return of Christ. Because He's coming in all of His glory, and He will invite us to come and enjoy that glory, that blessing, the blessing of His Father, His inheritance, the kingdom prepared for us since the creation of the world, eternal life.